gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Come on by, check out our wares, become a member, um, uh, Gunga Galunga, and all of that. So, uh, very excited to have uh, my my friend and AI colleague, um, although he's not half the man he used to be because he's lost a lot of weight, which makes me hate him. A- he's a senior fellow at AI. He runs our constitutional, you know, our... It's, I think the official title of the center is the Center for the Study of Constitution of the Constitution and Leather Belts or something like that. And he is also the co-director of the uh, Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State at George Mason University. Uh, Adam White, welcome back to the Remnant. It's been a while. It has been a while. It's it's great to be back. Um, and and let let the people know out there that I am not taking like dregs from advisory opinions or Sarah Isger's niche little law shop thing. You were on the remnant first. I knew you, I don't know if I knew you first. You probably met Sarah from one of your Harvard things a long time ago. Um, yeah, we, 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 we both attended a small, uh, law school near Boston, but I will say, Jonah, I did notice the fact that you suddenly started returning my calls about five seconds after, uh, after I, I appeared on the dispatch uh, show with Sarah, yeah, well, you know, um, one, has to, <laughs> one, one has to maintain one's, you know, uh, uh, connections with people, and 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 and, and, and it's at, at 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 the dispatch, Sarah. It's sort of like one of those. Um, it's like a. It's like a one of those financial advisor firms. She's tr- constantly trying to steal clients, and so yeah. I just have to hold on to you. So. You know, I mean, ostensibly, one of the main reasons we have you on is that, you know, I haven't done anything about the Supreme Court uh, nomination, um, um, Kadanji Brown-Jackson, um, and all that. But it seems like such a foregone conclusion that I'm not sure what there is to say. But, like, uh, just broad, pic- big picture, what were your takeaways? I mean, takeaways from the confirmation process. Uh, what is your s- sense of her chances? What is your sense of what kind of judge she would be? Justice. Sure. Well, she'll get confirmed. It seems it seems very clear now that Senator Manchin's came out in favor of her, and maybe we can di- dissect or not some of the highlights and lowlights of the hearings. But I, I thought a couple of big picture takeaways. Um, one is the fact that she went out of her way at times to sound so Scalia-like in her nominal endorsement of originalism. Um, you could take it both ways, and people do. Some people say this shows that originalism is sort of vapid as a legal theory. Um, but me being the sunny optimist, uh, I, I tend to take the other side of this, which is it really shows that over the course of 40 years, conservatives' advocacy for originalism uh, has, has taken root as a, as a political force and as a legal force. And you, you now have a, you're now, I guess, obligated, even if you don't believe in originalism, to say you do, which mm-hmm. is a good thing. It's a good thing. But related to that, Joan, I just say, I think that for the most part, this hearing reiterated a theme of the last few decades, which is Democrats tend to approach each confirmation hearing focused on the nominee, right? Either to get them confirmed or to to get them not confirmed. Conservatives, Republicans have tended, I think, to take the broader view that whether it's a Republican or a Democrat making the nomination, 
the confirmation hearing is an opportunity to mostly make the case for constitutional originalism and a broad view of the Constitution. And of course, this hearing descended into the into the the, the, the fever swamps of, of arguments over child pornography and and a few other things. Um, but by and large, I think it showed that conservatives once again were less focused on the nominee per se and more focused on the broader themes. And that's why conservative originalism is is winning the political fight over the course of 40 years. Yeah, so it's funny. The the originalism point, I'm I'm kind of torn about it. It's a little it, – it, I've been making this point about democracy for uh, a long time. It's that pretty much even the worst countries in the world, um, particularly during the Cold War, but even now – they have to say they're democracies, right? So, you know, it's like the Democratic People's Republic of Korea or the, you know, the, uh, you know, the, when, when the regime change thing came up about Putin, you know, they were like, well, you know, it's for the Russian people to decide who their president, it's not really, but like they have to talk that way. Um, and similarly, you know, it's, it's, it's hypocritical. It doesn't really change the nature of, of, terrible countries like China because they use the word, you know, republic or democracy, but it's better than them not, right? Yeah. And the hypocrisy itself is kind of illuminating. Um, and I, I do think at some level, if if Brown Jackson has the slightest fear of sounding inconsistent, the fact that she said originalist things is a good thing, right? Um, but, like, you don't have any real illusions that she is going to shock the left that she's let's put it this way you don't have any, any you don't have any illusions that she might be you know you know the term in the in the dune novels is the kwisatz haderach but you know for our purposes the, a left-wing david Souter, do you like like that she would actually be an originalist on the bench in any way no not in the slightest i i don't think that i i, I think that it's worth comparing her possibly to Kagan. Kagan is the first progressive justice in the modern era who I think speaks textualism as a first language. Mm-hmm. Um, she she is she is conversant in it. It's her native language. She takes it to very different places, um, and I don't think she's as committed to originalism as conservatives are. But she speaks it fluently, and and I think challenges conservatives to think a little bit harder about their own premises. I don't. I would be surprised if if Judge Justice Jackson even achieves that. Um, I don't, I don't get that sense from, from her in the hearings, but I think it is important that she recognizes the need to convey her points in sort of a second language version of originalism. And we'll see how far that, how far she takes that on the Supreme court. Um, but no, she's not going to be a, a, she's not going to be a progressive David Souter. She's going to just stay on the left, surely. And I I heard Charlie Cook talking about this on the editor's podcast the other day. He was like, look, if it, if she turns out to be. 100% 100% honest about that originalism stuff. That's a huge victory for conservatives. If it's 50%, that's a huge victory for conservatives. If it's 2.5% true, it's still better than than not, you know. Um I'm not I'm not here celebrating it, but I just I think it's worth keeping in mind. Um so I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on the 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 child pornography stuff. Um we're going to yeah. do a whole child pornography podcast later. I'm kidding. Um but uh, um uh what um you know my friend andy mccarthy i think did the best job of throwing cold water on all that at least from the right yeah um what did you make of all of it was did it have anything actually to do with the kind of justice that they were looking for or was it just messaging outside of the hearing room for other purposes 
Well, there's a pony in there somewhere, so to speak. Um, I, I, here's how I tended to look at it. Um, yes, it was all overblown, both in the way it was teed up before the hearings, as, as Andy McCarthy pointed out in his piece. Uh, and then during the hearing, I, I thought that the senator's rhetoric, the badgering and all of that, I thought it, 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 was, it was out of line and unfortunate. But here's, I think, the value of at least pursuing that line of questions in a good faith way. Um, Judge Jackson really perfected the nominee two-step, um, the, the, the ways you avoid answering questions. Uh, you say, if presented with a legal question, you say, I can't answer that question because I'm a judge or I want to be a justice and, and I'm not supposed to prejudge issues. So legal issue, sorry, can't answer it. Non-legal issue, oh, sorry, you know, I'm a judge, I'm not a policymaker, so I can't, I can't really speak to policy. You're asking the wrong people. So what does that leave? Basically leaves questions about judgment and character. Um, and those are important in a Senate confirmation hearing. Uh, so as the senators pursued the question about her sentencing decisions, I was interested to see how she justified them. Um, you know, she tended to say, well, I had a lot of discretion. I used it as best I could. Other judges were doing the same thing, which as any parent of small children knows is never the correct answer. Uh, other people <laughs> were doing it too. But I'd say I wanted to see how she would, how she would, she would react when challenged how she would really justify discretionary judgments because the Supreme Court inevitably makes some discretionary judgments. And I came away pretty dissatisfied with her answers. I was, I was even more dissatisfied with the, with the tone of, of the questions. But I think it was good that she was pushed on these issues. I, and also, by the way, even if a lot of this is Congress's fault for writing statutes too broadly, well, we can fault Congress for giving the judges too much discretion, and we can fault the judges for exercising that discretion poorly. So there was a good version of that line of argument to be had in there somewhere. I don't think we saw much of it, but I, I don't think it was it was out of line for the senators to pursue it at least some way. Yeah, and 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 again, I I don't want to defend the the line of questioning, even though I, I agree with you. There's there's a pony in there somewhere. At the same time, a lot of the mainstream media coverage of it, I think, you know, like I I generally like Chuck Todd. He's a friend. I, I think he tries really hard to be sort of a mainstream guy. Um, but they did a chart on Meet the Press this weekend, um, and like number of times child pornography was name was mentioned in the Elena Kagan confirmation hearings versus the you know Kanzanji Brown Jackson hearings, and like well, Kagan hadn't been a sitting judge handling child porn cases, right? So like it would be a much weirder thing to bring up, and um, I also think that like it has been wildly overplayed that this was all about QAnon. I mean, I just, maybe Josh Hawley has an idea about QAnon being part of his base or something like that, but like, like moral panicky kind of like freak out about child sex abuse is kind of baked into right wingness generally. And I share it, you know, to a certain extent, I certainly get it. Um, and I don't think you need the QAnon thing or, or any of that kind of stuff. I just thought it was a, it was ultimately bad faith that was the problem. And I don't like doing whenever people do stuff in bad faith. What did you think about her answer on the um, speaking of sort of right wing uh, hot button issues um, about defining a woman? Well, the first thing I thought was it was very. I think unintentionally revealing that her fallback answer was, I'm not a biologist, right. which if I understand the debates right now is not definitely not the correct answer. Um, be, beyond that, I don't think I have a very interesting take. I think it's my take is the one that others have, have offered, which is it just shows how desperate she was to avoid offending anybody on the right or the left. 
Um, a line I used a couple of times throughout coverage of the hearings was, it's March Madness season and the Democrats were playing a prevent defense. They were just trying so hard to not have too many points scored on them. They're willing to concede a few buckets just to avoid a run. Um, actually, And that's one a bigger picture thing. I don't want to derail the question, Jonah, um, but that was the, the striking thing from the very opening moment, Senator Durbin's opening statement. The way that he allowed the Republican senators to set the to frame the entire hearing, to set all the terms of the debate, to and by which I mean he started the whole hearing by basically trying to rebut criticisms of her and giving her an opportunity to rebut criticisms of her. I don't think she really had a good opportunity in questions with a senator to kind of define herself and make an like a an explicit case in in her favor. Until I think Senator Ossoff's questions at the beginning of the second day of questions, if I remember correctly, that was the first time, and I wasn't watching wall to wall. I watched a lot of it, but not all of it. That was the first time I thought, wow, she's really making a, a good case for herself, not in the way that she's fending off criticism, but in the way that she's being engaged, interestingly, by a Democrat's questions. And I thought that on the the, the issue of what's a woman and, and some of these other things, I think that Senator Durbin and the Democrats really... Uh, served her poorly by just basically trying to be her offensive line, um, which, which, uh, or now I'm mixing sports metaphors, but basically just allowing Republicans to to kind of come after her uh, without really making an affirmative case for her. Yeah, I, I kind of suspect that the identity politics factor in this was so powerful for Democrats in particular that you know the that. The, the first black woman thing just carried so much water psychologically for them that, you know, it, it, there was a certain sort of, as you guys say, res ipsa loquitur aspect to it. You know, there's a black woman, you know, and she's great. And, you know, I, don't, I, I shouldn't have to, like, defend her on other grounds because, it you know, it just speaks for itself kind of thing. And it does raise a possible irony, which is, again, neither of us think that she is going to be, you know, She's going to come out like, you know, the next Scalia um, after sort of working her way through the system as a progressive. But to the extent if she does have some, you know, originalism in her as she grows on the bench, it will have been missed in part because normally that normally what what Democrats look for when they're looking for a, a judicial nominee is their first and foremost, their commitment to the living constitution stuff. Right. And on this, because he said from the beginning, the litmus test is going to be an, an African-American woman. Maybe they didn't look as hard for that, for the philosophical stuff, because they were looking for the identity politics stuff. And I think it kind of, it threw them off in how to talk about her, how to deal with her. You know, I mean, they should have, you know, with the exception of maybe some stuff at the end, you know, not done as much celebratory stuff about the identity politics stuff. So that way, but I think what they, anyway, but the only reason I bring it up is that I think they were hoping in their minds that if Republicans were harsh on her, they would get to be able to say, look what they're doing to a black woman kind of thing, which a lot of liberals that you would expect said in, you know, in the media. Yeah. And remember how many times she alluded to the fact that this was her fourth, I think her fourth confirmation hearing, if I remember correctly. She said, I've appeared before you three times. I think that was, and I'm, this is just rank speculation and punditry. Uh, but it seems to me that surely was a a huge part of her selection was the fact that she had already been confirmed three times, which means she had gone through three vetting processes in the Senate and on Capitol Hill, as opposed to somebody like uh, California Justice Kruger, 
uh, out in California, who also I think would have been a very, very interesting candidate, but who hadn't gone through the Senate ringer. And I think, again, playing prevent defense, Democrats were just so concerned with getting somebody confirmed, again, focusing on the nominee rather than on the broader doctrinal sort of generational constitutional fight, that they just ceded all of this ground, the, the constitutional doctrinal ground, the, 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 the culture war ground, all of it, just ceded all of that just to get somebody who could get through the gauntlet. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's important, as we, we conservatives know from, from Robert Bork, um, but, but they just had blinders on, as far as I could tell, and weren't focused on any of these other things, or at least they were willing to just sacrifice them. So where do you come down on particularly senators who voted to confirm her for the lower bench, lower courts, but are not going to vote to confirm her on this? Just like, how do you do the, the balancing test on that? Um, you know, say you were, say you were working for one, like one of those senators. I think Ben Sass, you know, friend of this podcast, uh, said that he's not going to vote for her, but I believe he voted, you know, uh, for the lower court position. Same thing with Lindsey Graham. Say you were advising them. I mean, what is what is the best argument for for saying for these appointments? Yes, for this appointment, no. Oh, I'm totally fine with them changing their mind. The Supreme Court's just fundamentally different in the amount of discretion it has, the the extent to which it's hemmed in by Supreme Court precedent. Um, the just the substantive stakes are lower for a lower court nominee. The political stakes for the senators are lower, and you have to take that seriously. Um, and the parties have polarized so much over the Supreme Court and judicial doctrine that it would be, even if for most of our history, senators were pretty deferential to presidents and who they nominated, uh, we just live in an era of different nominees and different presidential and senatorial politics. And and I'd add that one of the reasons why I'm, I'm fine with that is, is if we were to tell senators you have to treat Supreme Court nominees the way we treat lower court nominees— well, they would, but they would do it by adjusting how much scrutiny they give to lower court nominees. Right. right, um, right. And so I, I think that it's it's probably a, a good thing to give a little bit more deference on the lower court nominees um, if you want to get any of those judges through at all. Yeah, it's going to be funny. Maybe not ha-ha funny, but it's going to be interesting uh, to see who accuses senators who voted to confirm for the lower court spots, um, but not for the Supreme Court how much, how many accusations of racism fly. And the, the problem is that, that racism argument kind of cuts both ways, you know? Yeah. Wait, so I'm a racist, but I voted to confirm her three times, but not the fourth time. I mean, like it's, it, it, you could see it working. This is one of the, one of the reasons why we can't have nice things and why I cut myself these days is you could see arguments from both sides working for their respective bases. So on MSNBC, we'll hear a lot about how it's racist and, on Fox, we'll hear a lot about how look at those stupid libs; they don't understand that it's not racist. And yeah, and and then that's why you need to subscribe to the Dispatch. And and we got to the, we got to work out the opposite argument a month and a half ago, right? When when Sen- when President Biden was moving forward with his nomination, and we, we got to we. I mean, I did not, and I disagree with a lot of the criticism of him, but but um. Uh, Republicans got to complain about the, sort of the, the the racial aspects of the of limiting the nomination to a black woman, and uh, and Democrats could say, "What are you talking about? We're just making sure that of all the qualified nominees, we'll give you know the, this one goes to a black woman." So you know the the joy of living in Washington is watching everybody on both sides of the table eventually, and the racism arguments we got to get both versions of them in in one Supreme Court nomination. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, on 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 that, I I really think he did a profound disservice to her. Mm-hmm. I understand it's a political bargain. You know, apparently Clyburn said you got to appoint a black woman, and I actually have no problem. I mean, I didn't say no problem, but like in the long sweep of history in America, in the United States, such deals have been made you know, for all sorts of things for Supreme Court appointments. My problem, it's a very Yuval Levin uh, point, is doing it in public, right? It's one thing for Biden to promise backstage, I promise we're going to have a black woman on the Supreme Court. It's another thing for him to say, I promise I'm only going to consider black women because that's another way of saying I am not going to consider Asian Americans or you know anybody else. And I do think it's bad politics. It's a bad way to think about these things, but this is also the life we have. Well, I, I, on that point, I, could I just yeah, say one more thing on absolutely. this? Because, you know, uh, obviously I wish Biden would have said it a little differently. Of course, I, I also wish he would have been more careful in declaring a policy of regime change in Russia. Um, but you go to war with the president you have. And, um, you know, I didn't like the way he put it in the debate. I, I wish he would have said, you know, I'm going to call for all the best nominees. And of when I get those, I'm going to give a pri- I'll be sure to give priority to to a black woman since we've never had a black woman on the Supreme Court before. Um, but I think this is actually one of those debates that reveals a lot more than it meant to uh, the debate around Biden's comment, because I think a lot of people, including like friends of mine on the right, they sort of jumped to the conclusion that by saying you were going to appoint a black woman, you were necessarily taking like the second best that, that you were exclu- you were almost inherently excluding the the best qualified, or you were at a high high risk of excluding the best qualified justices. And I think a Democrat, the, their version of the argument would be no, no, we are very confident that of all the best possible nominees for this court, there will be one or more black women, and we're going to make sure to pick that nominee. And I think the debate was it was obviously about race, but it was also about one's conception of what it means to be qualified or highly qualified to sit on the Supreme Court. And I think a lot of people in like my legal community sort of see it like a pyramid where there's like clearly a few people at the top of the pyramid who are the best qualified to be on the court. And I just don't think that Democrats necessarily have that same view of sort of the elite legal establishment. And for what it's worth, again, I wouldn't have said what Biden said, um, and I wouldn't have like thought about it the same way as Biden. But I'm kind of sympathetic to the idea that I'm more than sympathetic to the idea that when it comes to Supreme Court nominations, there are surely 20 or 25 people in the country who have like a have a strong claim to be like highly qualified to be on the Supreme Court. And um and, I, and so again, I think I think the the debate that erupted around Biden actually revealed a lot about how people think about who ought to be Supreme Court nominees in this day and age. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean I I got into a little bit of a spat with Sarah about all this. Um um I have no problem with the contention that she's qualified to be on the Supreme Court. It appears by you know my reading of it, she is qualified to be on the Supreme Court, and I never really thought otherwise. Mine is a political and statesmanship kind of argument, right? Which is that, yeah, it would be better for her if she was the product of a even if even if the fix was in from day one, it would be better optically publicly if Biden said we're going to have. Um, a broad search. He could even, you know, pay some lip service to the idea that, you know, obviously we're going to try, you know, we're going to look very hard for for female and 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 black candidates, but we're going to, 
everybody's under consideration and we want to get the best person possible and then pick her anyway. And that's just, it's better yeah. for her. It's better for the country. It's better for politics. Um, there were plenty of Supreme court justices who were picked for, for worse criteria than what Katanji Brown Jackson was picked for. And that's fine too. I mean, it's not fine, but that's, that's what the history is. I, it just, you don't want to say the quiet part out loud sometimes. And I think yeah. that's sort of a thing where the Democrats are off. I also think you, you raise an interesting point about how Democrats kind of see this stuff differently insofar as conservatives. I mean, I know liberals don't believe this, but conservatives actually, at least the ones that we hang out with really do care about a, the justices philosophy, right? I mean, we, we're, you know, the, the fed sock crowd, it takes this stuff actually really, really seriously. And one gets the sense, which makes sense given what the liberals philosophy about the court is one gets the sense that they, they want the reliable vote more than they want the philosophy. Right. And if that's your attitude, then of course she's qualified, you know? Um, but you know, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very, so, so Thomas soul kind of conflict of visions, understanding of what constitutes qualification. Yeah. And it and on the political side, it surely doesn't help. I mean, with Biden, the flip side of his commitment to appoint a black woman is, you know, you could also read it as, you know, the one thing I will say for certain about my nominee is it will not be an Asian person, right? I mean, that's <laughs> that's a weird way to frame to frame to frame this politically. But I, I'd say, surely there's room in between, sort of, let's nominate any warm body who will vote reliably on our side, and you know, we must search for the platonic ideal of the the, the, the the ideal vessel of this of this doctrine of originalism right there has to be room in the middle there for 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 judges who for, for accepting that that at the end of the day a supreme court appointment is a number of things and one of them is a philosophical choice but but there are also questions of sort of prudence and statesmanship and character um, and it's not like a again March Madness. It's not like you run a tournament and then crown the winner of the Supreme Court nomination sort of you know entry exam. Uh, it's 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 got to be more subtle than that. Um, although, look, I mean, look, in a it, as a matter of core principle, I actually do believe that all nine justices should be conservative in the small c sense of that they should be you know textualists or originalists or some version of that kind of thing where not because that's what my side believes, although I'm sure that influences me somewhat, but because I think the role of the Supreme court is to figure out what the constitution says, not what we want it to say. And that requires being some version of a textualist or originalist, or am I missing, you know, the third kind of heat here about, uh, how you can read the constitution. No, I told I I agree with that. I think it's it would be good to have a court of nine originalists, but I think it's also good that on our current court with six originalists of different flavors, um, that they have different flavors and that they're they're sort of in dialogue with one another. I often ask my libertarian friends who have a a much more sort of empowered ver- vision for the Supreme Court than I have. I often ask, you know, would you like it better if we had a court of nine Clarence Thomases versus nine like a mixture and and i think often they say yes and my follow-up question is okay would you rather have a court with just one clarence thomas would you like to have i mean and he's the only justice Mm -hmm. um and sometimes they say yes and sometimes they say no and and for me the answer is and i i I greatly admire justice thomas 
Um, but I'm very, very glad that Justice Alito is there and that mm. just Chief Justice Roberts are the, is there and the rest of them, and that they all have their own way of approaching this, all sort of generally within the bounds of originalism, but with an, a mix of other sort of temperamental and institutional um, values in mind that, that help inform their version of originalism. And, and so I, that's the kind of court I would like to see. So, uh, Justice Thomas, <laughs> um, uh, who we will both stipulate up front, we are uh, admirers of, um, yeah, and we think definitely. that his detractors are often, very often, very unfair to him, nonetheless has himself a bit of a pickle, because his wife, uh, I don't know if you know Ginny Thomas, I've met her a few times, I know lots of people who know her, uh, Texted some things that um are problematic. Uh, yeah. I saw you quoted somewhere um, about this yeah. stuff. How do you how do you see that, all this? And for the listeners at home, you can't see Adam squirming here, which is really enjoyable for me. <laughs> you know, I I I just want to say I've I've tr- I did give a quote to the Washington Post, and I'll, I'll explain it. Um, I basically said all I wanted to say in the post, and so I've avoided talking about it more. But since this is a niche podcast, um, I'll, I, I know I'll get away without sort of letting in on too much. So here's what I said to the post. They asked me what I made of the situation. And I said a lot, actually a lot of what you just said. Um, Justice Thomas and his wife have been plagued by unfair political attacks throughout their lives, including recusal accusations or demands that have been just outlandish and, Ill- and unfounded. Obviously, progressives want justice thomas to hear as few cases as possible um and and it's that's been pretty transparent but but then i said to the post i think this is this situation is a little different and we the facts are just coming into view now so who who knows um and it's one of the reasons why i've been kind of tight-lipped on this but what we allegedly know so far about the texts that she sent back and forth with white house chief of staff mark meadows i think that does raise the possibility of more difficult recusal requests in the future, because we're now talking about a concrete set of events um, that actually did, I, I mean, she did, she did not single-handedly give rise to what happened to the January 6th insurrection, but we now know that she was in contact with the White House in a course of events that ended up giving rise to the, to the insurrection. And so I would say that in fut- future cases, it's possible Justice Thomas will have to recuse himself from litigation around that. Now, not litig- not all litigation involving elections, not all litigation involving hot-button political issues, not none of that. And I and some people have said Justice Thomas should have recused from the one case the Supreme Court's already weighed in on regarding the disclosure of documents. I, I don't know that that's true at all, because recusal depends in, in part, or it ought to depend, on what just, Justice Thomas actually knew and when he knew it. So I, I have no idea whether he's going to have to recuse. But I think my point to the post was the recusal questions are going to be much more concrete and limited now. And, and in ways that I think he really, I hope he really, I mean, surely he'll take it seriously. Um, but, but this is going to require some, a real deft touch about a week before the, this, this, um, controversy erupted. I wrote a piece in the wall street journal right before the confirmation hearings, at urging the senators to ask Judge Jackson about her view of the court's legitimacy, because you have so many people, Senator Warren and others, who are trying to delegitimize the court now that they don't like who the justices are, um, and 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 so this and so because of the legitimacy issue, I really do I do think Justice Thomas is going to 
have to take this very, very seriously for the next few months. All right. So I, I, I don't think these will make you squirm, but uh, just some, some, some factual questions on this. I hear it's said often um, on cable news channels that this is particularly troubling because Thomas tried to, to block the release of this information, all this kind of stuff, right? And he was the one dissenting vote. As a factual matter, justices know how the other justices are going to vote, right? Yes, they do know. Um, they, 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 they have a conference after oral argument, or in this case, since there was an argument, you know, they'll, they'll meet and, and discuss, and then they'll eventually exchange drafts. But by the time the, the decision is made public, they've all known for a long time. Right. So he could not, like, people say, oh, this was him trying to be, to cover something up. Like, factually, no. It just, he, he couldn't have covered anything up. He knew he was going to be the lone dissenter, and he did it anyway. And you can have an argument about, well, maybe that's a bad look to be the lone dissenter. But that's actually sort of in some ways, you know, exculpatory of the guy because it shows that, like, even though he knew it would have no effect and people would make these accusations, he voted the way he thought he should vote on it. Yep. Similarly, on on the recusal thing, I mean, if it were me and I knew that my wife was going to get all up in my business about all of these things and people are going to get all up in my business about my wife and all of this stuff and I wanted to say... I don't know, avoid some sort of Will Smith, Chris Rock kind of scenario. <laughs> um, I would be very inclined to recuse myself from a specific case in the sense that what are the odds that he is going to be the decisive vote on something pertaining to the January 6th committee or the release of these kinds of materials anyway? So, okay, so this is where it gets really, really hard because, yes, it seems like the easy, the easy choice is just recuse, right? Avoid the, the problem altogether. But he was appointed by a president and confirmed by the Senate to do the hard work of deciding cases, right? And so even setting aside sort of the gamesmanship of what happens when critics start kind of working the refs and trying to intimidate a justice from stepping down, all the justices have a job to do, and including deciding a lot of cases they wouldn't necessarily want to decide. Um, and and so I I think recusal ought to virtually never happen except when it's really, really necessary. And that's what I think makes this situation very, very hard because the, the justices are not governed by a recusal statute. But we can talk about that if you want to. But but the, the recusal statute that applies to the lower court judges, which is often sort of invoked you know, for, for its spirit, if it's not its letter, it says in its very first paragraph that actually does say uh, justice, it says any justice judge or magistrate judge of the U.S. shall disqualify himself in any proceeding in which his impartiality might reasonably be questioned. And so we go around and around and around on what that actually means. Again, it can't just be a heckler's veto. It can't be a, a justice has to recuse every time a bunch of people want him or her to recuse. Um, but it has to be something short of like clear-cut, beyond a reasonable doubt evidence that the judge has a conflict of interest. And that's, this is one of those areas where, where the, the, I alluded earlier to like the character and temperament of a judge. Um, this is one of those areas where it really comes into play, where the judge himself or herself has to make this discretionary judgment that really is sort of part of the foundation of the court's own legitimacy. And so, I again, I, I want to be very, very clear here. Um, I wasn't saying he should have recused in previous cases. I'm not even saying that, that we know for certain that he, he'll have to recuse in future cases. It's impossible to know. Um, all, But my main point was now it's going to be a little different for this subset of cases. Do we know what cases may or may not be coming in the near future? I mean, is there anything in the pipeline that's obvious? 
No, it's going to be at this point. It seems to me all that's left are subpoena fights. Um, one of the reasons why I've always been uncomfortable with Congress kind of outsourcing its subpoena power muscle to the courts is that you see that the, the courts get dragged more and more into these fights between the executive branch and the legislature. But at this point, it seems to me the only things that are left, unless you get some kind of like liability for injuries suffered during the um, uh, during the, the insurrection, or if you get somebody challenging their conviction. Um, but outside of that, I think I think by far the most likely Supreme Court litigation is going to be subpoena related, um, either in before grand juries uh, out of the Justice Department or out of congressional oversight hearings. Would you be in favor? Um, as you know, uh, at AI, we kind of have this one of our white whales is Congress has been gelded and needs to be uh, more assertive of its role in our democracy. Um, would you be in favor of? of Congress actually sending dudes out with guns to enforce their congressional subpoenas? Uh, no, because this Congress, uh, Congress of this era, I mean, it's not really doing oversight for the sake of legislation. I mean, what the oversight we have today is all downstream of the, of the aforementioned administrative state, right? All congressional, virtually all congressional oversight now is either there to support the president and chastise his enemies or chastise the president and and support his his critics, uh, and so the last thing I'd want is sort of an unaccountable congressional police force serving as like the political deputies of of the modern administrative state. It would be different if this were an older era and Congress were actually preserving its own prerogatives. Then I could see a little bit more of of a need um, to separate out its enforcement power. But what we have now really is. Congress acting as an arm of administration, but with less process and accountability. I mean, we see that playing out in the oversight hearings where Congress demands more, right? They're not limited in the same way by the procedural protections of grand juries and other things. Um, You see more leak out because of it. Um, Congressional oversight is becoming worse and worse because it's basically aimed at the at political ends similar to the administration itself, but without nearly as many procedural protections for people who come before it. Um, right, since we brought up the, the insurrection thing, I tend to use the phrase capital riot because insurrection is fraught legal concept. Um, um, I think it's, it's, it's interesting that my law dude uses it so freely. Well, there, there's a reason for that, by the way. Okay, give me. It's because... It's and it, I do this intentionally. One because I think it's accurate, but two, one of the things I hate so much about being a lawyer or a recovering lawyer is the way in which words in political discourse, when they bump up against law, people try to police the disc, the political discourse by saying, "Well, that has a very technical legal mm-hmm, meaning." Mm-hmm. Well, yes, but I, I, last time I checked, I'm not sitting in a courtroom or writing a legal brief, and I just I really hate it when the lawyers try to monopolize the political discourse. I think that on its face, what we saw was an insurrection, and I understand that that might have a technical meaning in in legal cases, but let's worry about that when we get to the legal cases, and in in the meantime, I would rather just call things by their name, Mm -hmm. as one might say. Yeah, I mean, that's all fair. I mean, I I agree with you entirely about the the law lawyers, you know, doing their word magic, particularly during impeachment stuff. It It drives me absolutely crazy, and I've written much about that, so I don't want to get Back. I don't want to get sucked into that. But um, the January 6th stuff, of the people who are contesting the subpoenas of the January 6th committee, or the DOJ for that matter, I don't know how they're all divvied up, 
who has the best case and who has the worst case? <laughs> I honestly have no idea. Okay. I don't know if I could. I, there's there's no good way for me to answer. I, I have no idea. I haven't followed the cases, um, the specific like rioter cases very closely. Well, so like, um, I, not so counting I, the rioter people, let's, th- let's do it this way. Is there any way, let's say, let's say you're going back to being a lawyer guy and because yeah. just the money was so good and Steve Bannon hires you because you, because he's got some, someone you love locked in a dungeon and you have to do it. Right. So, uh, you have, and I, and I just, I love that. I love that money. <laughs> and, sweet, sweet money. And, uh, so, uh, is there any conceivable notion of a executive of executive privilege covering someone who doesn't work for the administration? Um, you know, who is, uh, clearly part of, uh, of, I don't want to use the word criminal enterprise necessarily, but certainly very, very shady <laughs> enterprise. Um, I just find like, I find it hard to get my head around the idea that this is what George Washington met, meant when he created executive privilege. Yeah. And I mean, I guess in the irony would be in George Washington's time, his actual on staff administration was much smaller. Mm-hmm. Right. And so today a president has at his disposal, many, many more people already in the building that he could have his super secret talks with. Um, so I, I, I would never say never, but it's hard for me to conjure up an outside advisor who actually has executive privilege without serving in the White House. I mean, executive privilege doesn't even extend to all the people in an actual administration. Um, and so it's hard for me to see how a president's outside advisor would. And, and by the way, the Trump, the Trump White House in particular, my sense of it, I could be wrong, was that they tried to often play this both ways. He would have outside people like John Eastman or whoever, who would claim sort of lawyer mm-hmm. privilege, right? Um, I, I have no idea what the terms of their engagement was, if they actually had a formal engagement, whether he was being paid. And of course, attorney-client privilege can attach even if you don't, even if you're not getting paid and even if you don't, don't have a written agreement. But Trump had this cadre of people around him who were kind of advising him, but, but they weren't on the books. And sometimes they were lawyers, but it's not clear if they were giving real legal advice or political advice, all of this. And and my instinct on this is is you know the presumption is against attorney client or let alone executive privilege. You really do have to prove that you were serving exclusively the the presidency um, versus the the person who was who was who was occupying the office at that moment in time. Yes, yeah, so from what I've seen, I I think John Eastman's claims that this was attorney client or I mean not even getting into the crime fraud stuff. I just are pretty sketchy. You know, meeting with a whole bunch of people who aren't his lawyer, aren't lawyers. There's, he was, it was a political enterprise, you know? I mean, and then there are people like Peter Navarro who like apparently are willing to say all the stuff that they did in an interview on MSNBC, but not willing to say it under subpoena. And, um, it just, it feels very clown show to me. Um, and I think it's one of these areas where, you know, you talk about how lawyers like uh, bully their way into political discourse the place where that's the worst is where hyper partisans can't make arguments on the merits. So they use these sort of magic words, um, as a way to sort of, uh, avoid having to actually make a real argument. And that's what it feels like to me entirely with a lot of this stuff. Well, yeah. And on the, just using the term insurrection, I mean, the point worked, the, my, my concerns worked in the opposite direction, right? People would say it's an insurrection, 
uh, in the normal meaning of the term, and therefore it clearly is illegal. Um, whatever happened is, is a crime because the statute uses the word insurrection, right? I'd say keep, it's the same word. And of course it's ordinary meaning informs its legal meaning, but just because we've thrown the word around a little bit, doesn't mean that, it, that, that it fits the statutory mm-hmm. meaning. Um, you know, I just in general have long, and I wrote for years about this at the weekly standard, just my concern about people racing to use the criminal process and quasi criminal processes, like aspects of congressional oversight, just for the sake of of policing political discourse and political conduct, um, and 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 I think that a lot of what we're seeing now, you know, it comes close to that. I have no sympathies for the for the the rioters or the insurrectionists, and a, a lot a lot of them, maybe all of them, belong in jail. And I have no qualms with saying I suspect crimes were committed at the highest levels. I'm very much open to that, but you have to be able to sort of be able to say that in general, but then wait to see sort of how the facts actually develop over time. But, but, and just circling back to Congress, I am very, very worried about Congress reconceiving itself as an arm of policing. Um, and we saw this through the Mueller investigation where I wrote a piece for commentary about this, about how Congress seemed to think that Mueller was working for them rather than working mm-hmm. for the attorney general. And he wasn't, and there was a big difference. Um, but, but more and more Congress is, is both acting as an arm of administration, but then also acting as though the real law enforcement parts of administration also work for them, um, the grand juries and the Justice Department, independent prosecutors, and so on. And there's a reason why the founders separated the powers, and, and we're way past the point of, of commingling them in dangerous ways. So uh, uh, changing topics a little bit, you guys had a big law nerd thing um on um the jurisprudence of justice alito i believe it was right is that what that was the purpose that's of right this thing? and i was uh um intrigued i'd say is a one word i could use um to see that uh that uh agent vermule uh noted sort of post-liberal natcon adjacent uh legal theorist at harvard uh uh was part of the uh, agenda um first of all how'd the thing go like why why the jurisprudence of alito and not somebody else well why not the jurisprudence of alito uh, justice alito who I've, I've been fond of of his approach since the very beginning um uh I, I i take no credit i get no i deserve no credit for the event it really was the brainchild of of robbie george and our our handsome and powerful leader Yuval Levin and and mm-hmm. and Sheriff Gurgis and a few other folks um, in the legal academy who put this event together and we just had a sort of murderer's row of legal scholars um, thinking about Justice Alito's contributions to the law generally and and to various aspects of the law specifically so it was a great day uh, Justice Alito did not attend the conference it would have given his sort of his temperament and personality would have been strange to see him there, um, since he is mm-hmm. such a, a private guy. Um, but I'd say it was a success. You're right, Adrian Vermeule was there. He was on a, a panel with me and Keith Whittington and Michael McConnell, and he had. He, we can explore his remarks, although I'm I'm still a little hazy on some of them. But I'd say m- the most significant aspect of his appearance on the panel might have been just his appearance at AEI, given that he's now staked out this sort of place for himself in legal academia. And I have to, I have to say, I've known him as a friendly acquaintance for a long time. And, and, and it's, it's very interesting to see him sort of take center stage, uh, in this way. Yeah. It's funny. You were the second 
law nerd on this podcast who, um, I'm not saying you're uncomfortable talking about Adrian Vermeule, but like had a personal relationship with him that the other one was Cass Sunstein. Oh. And they were co-working at the time I had Cass on he, They were working on a paper together and he just didn't want to go near any of it. I'm, I'm not squirming this time, by the way. I'm very, I'm, I'm fond of Adrian. I disagree with him totally and, and happy to talk about it. Well, yeah. So like, yeah, what can you, all right. So for, for the lay listener who hears yeah. me mention these people every now and then, and they're like, you're the only place I ever hear of these people. Um, um, uh, can you explain what his argument is about the constitution right now and what he would like constitutional interpretation to be just for the as straight down the middle like what's his argument because he's not coming on the podcast i can tell you that right now so um adrian vermule is a professor at harvard law school before that he was at chicago and he's in many ways sort of the consummate legal academic he he's until recently has never tried to really like tie his 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 legal arguments to 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 particular political agendas uh, for, for a long time. His research, his scholarship was focused on executive power um, and, and the need for a strong executive. In the last few years, last 10 years or so, he's focused in on what he's come to call common good constitutionalism. And the basic argument is this, it's that the constitution does not explain itself. It doesn't interpret itself. Uh, it necessarily, its interpretation requires the resort to to sort of fundamental principles that aren't spelled out in the Constitution itself. And Adrian, argue, Professor Vermeule, argues that, in fact, the best Constitution, uh, and perhaps the only one that can really function and sustain over time, is the one that's imbued with a sense of the common good that's deeply informed by uh, his vision of the Catholic faith. And speaking as a, as a Catholic, um, I'm you know, hey, yeah, who who doesn't love the Catholic Church, um, and and <laughs> and, uh, and so on. But but I guess where I'm, I'm rambling, I'll just say I disagree with almost all of his particulars, and I'm making my way through his 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 new book now. But the one thing I'll say in favor of him is that I I do I I do like the fact that he's he's arguing that you do need some principles undergirding your constitutional interpretation. And we've seen this over time. We saw Hadley Arcus make this arguments for years about natural law before him, Harry Jaffa. Um, mm-hmm. More recently, mm-hmm. it was the libertarians. It was Professor Randy Barnett, a friend of mine, a friend of yours, Shirley, um, and his argument for a much more explicitly libertarian vision for the Constitution. Um, I disagreed with all of those particulars, but I agreed that you do need a vision of like what's a good country, what's a good citizen, and that has to inform your view of the Constitution. And so I, I disagree with all of his specifics, but but I'm I'm a little bit sympathetic to like the basic zeitgeist of the project. Yeah, I mean, the way you phrase it, I gotta have a pleasant conversation about it. Uh, and because I, I think you're right as a prudential matter, right? I don't know necessarily as a as a theoretical or or or. Uh, interpretive, you know, theory. Yeah. I don't know that you're right, but like as a prudential matter, if you had nine justices who all hated the United States of America and were bent on evil, that even if they were originalists, yeah. <laughs> that would be bad, right? Yeah. And there are, you know, there are prudential questions that have to enter into uh congrat, you know, constitutional jurisprudence and I I think that's right. It it at the same time, they should be as clear as possible so people know what you're 
priors are and what the context is. Um, that said, um, you know, so this idea and there's this guy, Josh Hammer, and these are basically among the only people I know of, except for a whole bunch of young college kids who don't know Jack about the constitution, um, uh, who seem to be arguing, um, for a results-based constitutional jurisprudence. Um, is that fair, right? That like, you, you, you come to, you, you figure out where the constitution, where you want the policy to be, and then you come up with the, the argument for it. Is yeah, that- I'd say it's, it's fair to say that it's, re- it's results-based, but in the sense that the proof, they think the proof is in the pudding and this pudding tastes terrible, right? That something, something's gone wrong with the system. Um, I don't know that they're results centered. I don't think they say what's the right outcome and how do we reverse engineer a framework for it. Um, but I think they take the current situation as proof that the alternative is worse. Um, that, that's how, that's how I, I, that's what I make of their project for what it's worth. Just put my own cards on the table. Uh, the reason why I'm, I'm sympathetic to, to sort of thinking to their thinking hard about the underlying principles is that I, I think the American constitution was a constitution written for a certain people of certain character, um, by which I mean Republicans and not capital R Republicans, but lower R Republicans, that our constitution requires a, a Republican sentiment, a Republican character, it requires lower R Republican institutions. And in part, because so many parts of our constitution, as we, you know, is now said over and over again, are not really defined by rules so much as by norms and traditions and by self-restraint. And, and we learn that lesson hard, not just through the Trump years, but the years before and the years after. And so I very, very much believe that we need to recover the re- small r Republican principles that our Constitution was premised upon. Um, so I'm all in favor of recovering principles. I just think they are recovering the wrong principles. And for what it's worth, as a Catholic, it seems to me the easiest way to end America's hospitality for Christianity and for Catholicism is to endorse the sort of principles that that my fellow Catholics in this con- common good Constitution movement somehow want to sort of claim for the Constitution, even when there's no real political will for it. I mean, it's not a coincidence that America has been, in, throughout all of history, one of the nations most hospitable to a sustainable vision of the Catholic faith in a way that I think actually resembles the teachings of, of Christ and not Caesar. Um, and I think that the common good constitution, the common good constitutional moment, movement, I've pointed this out a couple of times. I spoke at a symposium in honor of Adrian, and I reviewed his most recent book, with Cass Sunstein on the administrative state. And I, my, I think my punchline on that review was Adrian's administrative state demoralizes citizens in both senses of the term. Um, it, it, may, it causes them to lose faith in, this, in our constitutional system and also causes them to be much worse people than they would be in a, in a functioning republic. Um, that, that all sounds fair to me. I mean, I, 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 the pushback I would give is, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, as, as a political matter, I think it would be lunacy for social conservatives and for Catholics in particular to try and say, okay, now the constitution is a Catholic constitution, not a Protestant constitution, not a Christian constitution, but a Catholic constitution. It would be disastrous for Catholicism and for the social conservatism that I'm sympathetic to. You know, one of the reasons why um, I really hate the nationalism talk is that it is impossible to disaggregate from partisan tribalism. And so you end up having this thing where one group of people represent the true nation 
and the other group of people are the enemies of the nation. And, you know, what can go wrong with that kind of logic? What you want to do is have stuff, you know, there, there's some things that need to be Im- sort of embedded in the common culture that are common assumptions, regardless of partisan position. Um, and when you make them the focal point for when you make them the, the badge, the identifying badge for one party, you basically, because of negative polarization, make the other party reject them. And so if you're going to tell me that the Republican Party is now going to be the party of ultramontane institutionalized Catholicism, well, that's going to be really bad for Catholicism and um, never mind the Republican Party. But that said, um, I mean, again, I know you don't disagree with any of this, but when you say that the Constitution was founded, was, was written for certain people at a certain time and all of that, that is not an argument for, even if I agree with that 100%, that's not an argument for reading new meaning into the Constitution. It might be an argument for amending the Constitution, right? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I think either the words have some correspondence with the reality of the time that they were written or they don't. And to say, well, the nature of the people has changed, so therefore our reading of the Constitution has to change, I, that feels very living constitution to me. Well, th- so... As a legal matter, yes, and I'm not saying courts should interpret the laws differently based on this, but I think it's the spirit that ought to inform the work of the executive branch, the legislative branch, the citizens, and and other parts of, of, of our society of thinking about outside of legal disputes, how should we carry out our own roles in, in this constitutional system? And I think that, that it, that much of what we've lost in recent years, giving rise to such a brutal form of politics, is that we lost this sense of of the, the sort of. I, mean, I, I often think, and I'm trying to write about Republican virtue, even just like sort of the dignity of of seeing one citizen as as sort of equal to to, to one another, seeing ourselves as 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 fellow countrymen, even when we disagree, and not sort of as you said, like warring warring nations fighting for disputed territory where each presidential election is like a regime change. Um, I, I'd say that, you know, the, that our constitution, the system can go horribly wrong when we, we lose that. And I think it's not a coincidence that the constitution actually says in a, a provision that we very rarely invoke as a legal matter, that the federal government would, would, um, would preserve Republican government in the states because they understood that not just as a legal matter, but as a matter of character and of a well-functioning society, it needs to begin with a basic vision of not just the government, but also the uh, one another. So, and I and look, and your point about the administrative state sapping Republican virtue, I think is a very good one. And we could probably do a whole podcast on it. I do have a question. Let's, so, <laughs> um, um, you hang out in these sort of fed sock circles. You, you, you speak their language. You're sort of like the, the museum guy from Indiana Jones, um, who can, drop in on any federal society, you know, anywhere in the world and blend right in and talk with all of them. Yeah. How much uh, of the Vermulian argument um, is actually catching on among the professional lawyer people, academic conservatives? Um, are there judges yet in the pipeline who um, are picking up this baton or is it largely sort of uh you know a grass tip because my my basic view is that 
I don't know if you saw it, but Adrian Vermeule wrote a very short little essay for um, Saurabh Amari's new magazine, Compact. And it was pretty whiny. And it, about how the common good people have been, fro- at first they were frozen out, and now they're being co-opted. And I thought it was very funny that, you know, this is the same week that this Harvard prof- tenured Harvard professor is speaking at AEI. And it's, yes, it's the, the freezing out clearly failed. Um, but um, it feels very much to me like a very obscure elite argument about a bunch of people who want to be more prominent and centered in the, in, uh, in the sort of the conservative intelligentsia or conservative entertainment networks or whatever. It depends on the specific personalities we're talking about. I don't think Vermeule wants a Fox, Fox News show, right? But, um, uh, but some of the people sort of use it, weaponizing his stuff do. And in some ways, it feels very much like, like the fights over who Reagan was going to appoint the NEH in 1982 uh, with like huh. 13 people, 13 quote-unquote neocons led by Bill Bennett at the time, fighting with like 11 agrarian quasi sort of racially problematic guys like Mel Bradford. And it was a huge, huge deal for a very, very small number of people. So is this, is this thing catching on at all? Do you see it differently? Well, you know, you, you preface the question by saying I get along well with FedSoc folks. And just to be clear, I'm still actually a very proud member of the Federal Society. I like to do a lot with them. And and this month, I'm actually flying out to to speak to the Federal Society chapter at, at Northwestern's law school. And I'll be curious to get a sense from the law students about where they are on these things. Because I, I do kind of wonder how much this is catching on in law schools. I was up at Harvard last fall. Um, uh, strangely, didn't see Sarah Isker there that day. I, I thought I think she goes up at least three times a week. Um, but I was I was talking with some law students I'm friends with there, and and I asked them about this, and they said, yeah, you know, about thirty percent of the Federal Society members, you know, are pretty favorable towards the Common Good Constitution. Interestingly, they then said, you know, about thirty percent of us are dispatch mm-hmm. conservatives. I like it. Um, so your brand is coming across pre- pretty well up there. Um, but of course, that's Harvard, right? That's right there in in Adrian's backyard. Uh, so I don't know, but my sense from being around law students in Washington and elsewhere um, and and college students who are aspiring to law school is that they're kind of attracted to and excited by this common good constitutionalism thing. And again, I, I'm not entirely surprised by that because for the last 10 years or 15 years, my sense has been that the libertarians have had the zeitgeist among the younger lawyers. Definitely not among the the older lawyers. When I reviewed that book by Cass Sunstein and Adrian Vermeule, I referred to Vermeule as a conservative. And a few of my conservative friends who are older than me really bristled at that and said he's not a conservative at all. But they really meant sort of a a Mm Scalia-style originalist. And by the way, Adrian clerked for Scalia many moons ago. Um, but, But I'd say that I think that common good constitutionalism could really take root among this younger generation of conservatives, and even if it doesn't map directly onto legal arguments or legal interpretations, I think it's going to affect their cast of mind of what the role of the judge is. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think it's maps directly onto what the new generation of actual judges are doing. But I do think this new generation of judges are more confident in pushing back against the political branches than the first generation of originalists were. Um, And so I think that the, the the long-run influence of what Adrian's doing could actually be significant. We'll see. It's way too soon to tell. And I think more likely than not, it'll just get assimilated into originalism. But who knows? 
Yeah, well, I mean, look, I mean, if, if they're more confident about pushing back on the other branches, which is fine by me, um, that could as just as much be testament to Randy Barnett's influence. Because, I mean, yeah. Lord and knows Philip he's, he's yeah. uh, you know, uh, into pushing back on on the other branches. Um, yep. All right. Well, I, I you know, I mean, I, 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 we've, I've kept you a little longer than I'm supposed to. And, 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 and anything further would be really excessive nerdery. Um, which I'm not sure is warranted by the, the, the fact pattern, as you people say, you people, you people, <laughs> I have, I have zero problem speaking derogatorily about lawyers. I really, I just, <laughs> it comes naturally to me. You know, the fact that you guys can't see your reflections in mirrors it should be a dead giveaway about why. And, uh, but it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, Adam White, thank you very much for uh, coming on the Reddit. Great to be here. Okay, so uh, Adam White has left the studio. Always good to talk to him. Um, uh, I don't have to uh, do law nerd stuff for a while, which is a nice box to check. Um, and uh, and I hope all the shade that we were throwing at AO is picked up appropriately. Um, and uh, um, the one thing we were just talking about afterwards, uh, I was chatting with him before he left, was... You know, the part of this argument of the the this new common good constitutionalism stuff, which I think Adam bless his heart is is too diplomatic about, even though he clearly doesn't agree with it, is that this this argument. And I know you've heard me rant about this before. This argument that 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 American liberalism, you know, procedural what they call procedural liberalism, is value neutral, and I just think that's just just enormous hot garbage the amount of effort and trial and error over you know a couple thousand years that is built into or longer that is built into what what these guys dismissively call procedural liberalism um is just staggering and um you know the the right to face your accuser if you've been charged by the state with a crime is just an enormous moral good the right to freedom of association, freedom of worship, um, the right to due process, um, uh, you know, the right to be immune from search and seizure. These are not neutral things. These are um, incredibly important, morally rich constructs that um, only work if they apply to everybody. They only work if we are all equal in the eyes of God and government. And if you take the position that you know, the bad people don't get these rights because they don't deserve those rights, then nobody really has those rights because the definition of bad people is constantly changing. And, um, and that doesn't mean that you can't have prudential, you know, considerations, you know, ticking time bomb scenarios and, and all the rest. But this, this sort of rhetorical sleight of hand that these guys use all the time of making it sound like the, you know, support for, you know, what they call procedural liberalism is a way to sort of stand on the sidelines of enormous important cultural matters. It's just not true. It's a stolen base. It sounds really per persuasive to people who haven't thought it through. Um, and it's, I think it's pretty dangerous. So anyway, but I didn't talk to Adam about it. I'm not saying he would disagree with me. I just wanted to get it off my, my chest as it were. So, um, with that, if you haven't read it, we'll put it in the show notes. I did this long G file on Friday about that compact magazine. Um, thing which has some really interesting stuff in it and 
I also have huge problems with a lot of what they're doing. And uh, th- that's all. Oh, I believe this Friday will be uh, drive time because it's the first Friday of April. Very exciting. Um, I mean, not for the listeners or me, but like for the kids will be on it. Um, and uh, And with that, I'll see you next time. Objection, Your Honor. This is a podcast.